This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Chapter 1. The Theological Origins of the U.S. Constitution. Quote by R.J. Rushdoony, 1964. As has been noted, many men use words which to others imply a religious view not held by the speaker or writer without an awareness either of the divergence of meaning or the mixed presuppositions. Witness, for example, Reverend John Witherspoon, Presbyterian leader who in 1768 assumed the presidency of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University. Witherspoon taught many who later played an active role in American life. His own belief in sound money, mixed government, and the division of powers was pronounced. An Orthodox Calvinist, Witherspoon, without any sense of contradiction, also followed the philosophy of Thomas Reed, Scottish realism, using this questionable tool against Hume, Deism, and French philosophers. In his lectures on moral philosophy, he spoke the language of rights and reason, combining with this man-centered emphasis his own theocentric faith. End of quote. Men know of Harvard and Yale, but Princeton seems to be a newcomer to the ranks of the Big Three. Not so, or at least not quite so. Princeton has had its ups and downs over the centuries, but Princeton, even before it was called Princeton, before 1896, served a crucial role in American history, the transmission belt of rationalism and classical liberalism into Presbyterianism. According to recent monographs on the school's history, whenever it failed to do this, it fell into a period of decline and insignificance, i.e. fell under the control of men who really did believe in Presbyterian's Westminster Confession of Faith. Princeton has had more well-known presidents than any school in American history, Jonathan Edwards, John Witherspoon, and the Virginian Woodrow Wilson. Two other less famous presidents played important roles in transforming the Presbyterians, Virginian Samuel Davies, a leader in the Great Awakening, who succeeded Edwards briefly until his death, and the Scottish defender of natural law who brought, quote, Christian evolutionism to young Presbyterian gentlemen in the late 19th century, James McCosh. If we count William Tennant's Log College as the predecessor of College of New Jersey, then we should add his name to the list. Every Presbyterian clergyman except one who was prominent in the Great Awakening was a Log College man. I begin my discussion of apostate covenantalism where Rush Jr. began his discussion of what he regards as covenantally Christian America with Reverend John Witherspoon. He was the teacher of the man who is often called the father of the Constitution, James Madison. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, the only minister of the gospel to do so. Witherspoon serves as perhaps the best example in the history of the Christian church of a man who defended a halfway covenant philosophy and subsequently pressed for an apostate national covenant. He was the most prominent clergyman in the colonies during the Revolutionary War. He was hated by the British. When British troops captured Reverend John Rosborough, they bayoneted him on the spot, thinking that they had captured Witherspoon. He was therefore the representative of the church in that era. He did not merely sign the Declaration of Independence. He symbolically signed his brightest student's 200-year or more jail sentence for the American church. Witherspoon, in the name of Calvin's God, substituted Locke's compact theory of civil government for biblical covenantalism. Society is contractual, not covenantal. He did not distinguish society from the state. 
This is a fundamental error of political analysis. It must either limit the concept of society to the state and its monopoly of coercion, or else expand the concept of the state to encompass all other corporate human relationships. Quote, society I would define to be an association or compact of any number of persons to deliver up or abridge some part of their natural rights in order to have the strength of the united body to protect the remaining and to bestow to others, end of quote. Sovereign men in a state of nature agreed with each other to set up a political hierarchy to pass and enforce laws and to bestow rights on others in the future. Here is the Lockean covenant in all its autonomous grandeur. Society, Weatherspoon wrote, is a, quote, voluntary compact among equals. Most important, his discussion of oaths was limited strictly to contracts, person to person, and vows, personal promises between God and an individual. Oaths, he said, are appendages to all lawful contracts. He did not discuss covenants as oath-bound contracts among men in which God is the enforcing party. Had he done so, he would have had to abandon Locke and the whole Whig political tradition. Witherspoon made the assumption that there is a common-sense logical realism that links the logical processes of all men, Christians and non-Christians. He appealed to this common-sense realism in his defense of the Christian faith. This was the heritage of 18th-century Scottish rationalism, the birthplace of the right wing of the Enlightenment. Specifically, this was Thomas Reed's philosophy. Because he believed that there is such a realm of neutral human reason, it was easy for Witherspoon to fall into the trap of believing in common principles of political philosophy. After all, this was the common error of a generation of level-headed Scots who were in the process of reshaping the intellectual heritage of Western civilization. It was the most common cultural error of 18th century English-speaking Protestantism. It was also the most devastating. It led to the transfer of political and judicial authority to the humanists. Yet Rushduni adds this cryptic evaluation, quote, This confusion, however, was slight in contrast to other phenomena of the American scene, end of quote. On the contrary, this was the heart of that confusion, a confusion which led to the public breaking of the civil covenants of the first century and a half of American political life. That Rushduni did not see how devastating the results of this confusion were points to an almost equally great confusion on Rushduni's part. Without citing his source, Rushduni says that Witherspoon trained many of the future leaders of the new nation. They included a president, James Madison, a vice president, Aaron Burr, 10 cabinet officers, 21 U.S. senators, 39 congressmen, and 12 governors. He could have added that six served in the Continental Congress and 56 served in state legislatures. Furthermore, of the 25 college graduates at the Constitutional Convention, nine were Princetonians and six had Witherspoon's signature on their diplomas. The magnitude of what these men did, breaking the civil covenants of the original colonial settlement, testifies to the catastrophic confusion in Witherspoon's system. Madison, after remaining in New Jersey to study with Witherspoon for an extra year, returned to Virginia and vowed to devote his life to overturning the religious oaths required to hold public office in Virginia, a task that he and Jefferson achieved early in 1786. He was not in revolt against his teacher. He was applying what he had been taught as he continued to do for the remainder of his career. The next year, he did much better, or worse, than this. He made illegal any such oath at a national level. Yet it was Witherspoon who had introduced him to the writings of the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers through his syllabus on, quote, moral philosophy. David Hume, Francis Hutcheson, Adam Smith, Thomas Reed, Lord Kames, and Adam Ferguson. It was these writings, he later said, that had brought him to his views on civil and religious liberty, i.e. apostate covenantalism. Who Taught the Lawyers? William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England was published in 1765. 
Almost immediately, it became the standard textbook for apprentices in law in the American colonies. It is occasionally referred to in American history textbooks, but it is seldom read today. In retrospect, it seems strange that we should identify him as the teacher of American colonial lawyers. He was a staunch defender of the absolute judicial sovereignty of Parliament. Any law that was physically possible for Parliament to enforce was valid law, he insisted. In short, he denied his other operating presupposition, the binding authority of natural law. Americans paid less and less attention to this aspect of Blackstone's theories as the revolution approached and then broke out. They took what they liked from his system and ignored the rest. To answer the question, in whose authority did the framers act? We need first to go to Blackstone. The commentaries provided an official answer, yet one which hides a far more important clue as to the nature of the constitutional covenant and its true author. In one of the few passages comprehensible to readers who are not intimately familiar with the intricacies of the English common law in 1765, Blackstone wrote, quote, This law of nature, being co-eval with mankind and dictated by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity. If contrary to this, and such of them as are valid derive all their force and all their authority, immediately or immediately from this original. But in order to apply this to the particular exigencies of each individual, it is still necessary to have recourse to reason, whose offense it is to discover, as was observed before, what the law of nature directs in every circumstance of life, by considering what method will tend the most effectually to our own substantial happiness." End of quote. Blackstone said that he believed in a literal, ethical fall of a literal man. This fall of man had corrupted human reason. Quote, and if our reason were always, as in our first ancestor before his transgression, clear and perfect, unruffled by passions, unclouded by prejudice, unimpaired by disease or intemperance, the task would be pleasant and easy. We should need no other guide but this. But every man now finds the contrary in his own experience, that his reason is corrupt, and his understanding full of ignorance and error. End of quote. Therefore God gave us revelation regarding his law in the Bible. Quote, the doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. End of quote. He went so far as to argue that, quote, the revealed law is, humanly speaking, of infinitely more authority than what we generally call the natural law. End of quote. He based this conclusion on the weakness of human reason to understand the natural law. Revealed law is more certain. Quote, if we could be as certain of the latter as we are of the former, both would have an equal authority. But, till then, they can never be put in any competition together. End of quote. Undermining Biblical Law Having said this, he then spent four volumes describing English common law with only a few footnote references to the Bible. In the first three volumes, running almost 500 pages each, each has one footnote reference to the Bible. The fourth volume, on criminal law, public wrongs, has ten references. Not one of them is taken by Blackstone as authoritative for civil law. They were seen merely as historical examples. There is not a single reference to Bible, Moses, or Revelation in the Sets Index. How could this be if he was persuaded that biblical law and natural law are the same, but with biblical law so much clearer to us? Blackstone's preliminary remarks were familiar in his era. Englishmen commonly tipped the brim of their epistemological caps to God and the Bible, but they did not take off their caps in the presence of God. They pursued their academic specialties just as Christians do today, with no systematic study of what biblical law specifically reveals regarding those disciplines. 
it was considered sufficient for Blackstone to have formally equated biblical law with natural law. Having done so, he could then safely ignore biblical law. This common equation of biblical law with natural law faced two monumental problems in the 18th century. One, the continuing negative legacy of the English Civil War from 1642 through 1660, in which the various Christian churches and sects had failed to agree on much of anything, a social and political experiment which ended with the resolution of Charles II, the intellectual legacy of Isaac Newton, which had created a blinding illusion of the near perfectibility of reason's ability to discern the perfect laws of nature in the physical world, and which therefore held out hope that this could also be accomplished in the moral and social realms. This dual legacy indicated that biblical revelation, or at least men's understanding of that revelation, is far less certain as a guide to human action than unaided, unregenerate reason. Biblical higher criticism was a century old in religious thought and politics by the time Blackstone wrote his commentaries. Thus, by the time that commentaries appeared, the foundation of his defense of the superiority of biblical law to natural law, the greater clarity of biblical revelation compared to reason's perception of natural law, was not believed by most men who called themselves educated. This raises another question. Was Blackstone in fact deliberately lying? In a perspective essay by David Berman, we learn of a strategy that had been in use for over a century, combating a position by supporting it with arguments that are so weak that they in fact prove the opposite. This was a tactic used by those who did not believe in immorality to promote their skepticism. Berman makes a very shrewd observation regarding academic historians and scholars. Quote, most of us do not like liars or lying, nor are we inclined to accept conspiracy theories or explanations that postulate secret codes or cabals. These aversions may explain why the art of theological lying has been so generally ignored. End of quote. There is at least reasonable suspicion that Blackstone was lying. If he was not lying, then he was naive beyond description, for his lame defense of biblical revelation greatly assisted the political triumphs of the enemies of Christianity in the American colonies. By 1765, the Newtonian view of the authority of universal reason had long since transformed English political thought. In this chapter, we will explore the background of this monumental intellectual and moral transformation. This survey is necessary in order to answer this question. The U.S. Constitution. Christian or secular? The Constitution of the United States is a unique document. It has served as the integrating legal framework for the United States for two centuries. People around the world give lip service to its greatness, although no other nation operates in terms of a constitution remodeled after the U.S. Constitution. The conservative columnist Richard Grenier is correct. Quote, it has never occurred to most Americans that their republic, the first democratic state on a national scale, adopted a constitution that has been taken seriously as an enduring model by nobody. I said nobody. End of quote. While other nations have sometimes attempted to write their national governments in terms of it, some coup comes, or some revolution, and sweeps away most traces of the imported culturally foreign document. The Constitution apparently cannot be successfully exported. It was the product of a unique set of historical circumstances that cannot be duplicated, circumstances so fundamental to the coming of the Constitution that without them the document cannot operate successfully. It is not surprising that many present-day religious and political groups in the United States want to take credit for it. Over a century ago, in the midst of the Civil War, B.F. Morris wrote his massive, but unfortunately unfootnoted, Christian Life and Character of Civil Institutions of the United States, 1864. A similar theme has been pursued by Verna Hall and Rosalie Slater in their Christian History of the Constitution series of reprinted primary source documents and extracts from uncopyrighted late 19th century politically conservative humanist history textbooks. Jerusalem or Mythological Rome 
Yet this view of the Constitution has always had its challengers, for good reasons. There was little mention of theology and ecclesiastical influence in the common textbook histories of the early republic until the late 1930s. This change came about largely as a result of Harvard's Perry Miller and his student Edmund Morgan, who taught history at Yale. Miller rehabilitated the Puritans and early American Protestant religious ideas beginning in the 1930s, and Morgan carried on this tradition. The fact remains, however, that John Locke, who was a cautious Trinitarian, made no mention of Christianity in presenting the case for political liberty in his second treatise of government, published in 1690, written around 1682. It was to the second treatise that literate defenders of English liberties in the American colonies, but only rarely in Whig England, appealed in the mid-18th century, not to his paraphrase and notes on the epistles of St. Paul, which was non-political, or his book written in the last years of his life when he returned openly to Christianity, The Reasonableness of Christianity, 1695. We also find few references to the Christian religion in Cato's letters and the independent Whig, the anti-clerical and libertarian English newspapers of the 1720s, which became popular reading in the colonies during the 1770s, according to contemporary figures such as John Adams and patriot historian David Ramsey. At best, the biblical element in, quote, Whig political theory during the American Revolution is unclear. If one were to trace the political thought of John Adams back to anyone, it would have to be James Harrington, the author of The Commonwealth of Oceana, 1656, a secular, aristocratic document that is concerned with questions of property and political power, not covenants and dominion. Harrington himself was essentially a pantheist. He explained the Puritan conflict of the English Civil War of the 1640s in terms of social forces, not religion, a secular tradition of historiography to which Marxist historian Christopher Hills appeals. The textbook histories of the American Revolution from the earliest days have been far closer to Harrington's view of historical causation than to R.J. Rushdoony's. We do not find authoritative references to the Bible or church history in either the Federalist Papers or the Anti-Federalist Tracts. Adrian Koch's compilation of primary source documents, The American Enlightenment, is not mythological, even though it is self-consciously selective. There was an American Enlightenment, though subdued in its hostility to Christianity. Jefferson, after all, kept hidden his cut-up, repasted New Testament, purged of the miraculous and supernatural. He knew what his constituents would have thought of such a theology. He refused to publish this book. He told his friend, Christian physician Benjamin Rush, because he was, quote, averse to the communication of my religious tenets to the public, because it would countenance the presumption of those who have endeavored to draw them before that tribunal, and to seduce public opinion to erect itself into that inquest over the rights of conscience, which the laws have so justly prescribed, end of quote. That is, if word got out to the American voters who were overwhelmingly Christian in their views regarding what he really believed about religion, he and his party might lose the next election, despite a generation of systematic planning by him and his deistic Virginia associates to get Christianity removed from the political arena in both Virginia and in national elections. The book was not made public until 1902. In 1904, the 57th Congress reprinted 9,000 copies, 3,000 for use by senators and 6,000 for the House. It was a very different America in 1904. The framers rhetorically appealed back to Roman law and classical political models in their defense of the Constitution. Madison, Jay, and Hamilton, under the Roman name Publius, in signing the Federalist Papers, Publius was a prominent founder of the Roman Republic. The Anti-Federalists responded with pseudo-Roman names, yet both groups were heavily dependent on late 17th century political philosophy, as well as on early 18th century Whig Republicanism although perhaps not so dependent as was thought in the 1960s and 1970s. They shared a common universe of political discourse, and Trinitarian Christianity was what both sides were attempting to downplay. The political discourse of the age was dominated by classical illusions, not by Hebraic ones. 
The curricula of the college at Oxford and Cambridge had always been grounded to the ideal of thorough knowledge of the pagan classics, and even the Puritans, while always officially skeptical about such training, and always filled with fear and trembling about its threat to the soul, were forced to submit their ministerial candidates and the sons of the gentry and merchants to the classroom rigors of the humanists, generation after generation. They did not succeed in changing the curricula of the universities during the Puritan Revolution, and after that there was no possibility of Trinitarian educational reform. The classical educational model of Oxford and Cambridge did its steady work of secularization in the English-speaking world. Even in Puritan Harvard and Yale, decade by decade, the two universities moved towards epistemological Unitarianism. And in the early 19th century, official Unitarianism triumphed. But this commitment to the classics was steadily tempered, not by Christianity, but by Newtonian science. In the second half of the 17th century, writes Morgan, as the impact of Hobbes, Locke, and Newton illustrates, men were seeking knowledge of a new fixity in their lives and in the world around them. End of quote. In the 18th century, this quest for fixity accelerated. The college curricula did not change, but the spirit and motivation of educated men did. What we must understand is that the U.S. Constitution is in large part a product of rhetorical enlightenment appeal back to the Greco-Roman world. Yet it was in fact something quite modern, specifically a reaction against the Puritanism of both 17th century American colonialism and the Puritanism of the Cromwellian Revolution of 1642 through 1660. To what extent was this verbal appeal back to Rome rhetorical? Pangle believes, as I do, that the framers were essentially moderns rather than ancients. They were far more influenced by late 17th century social thought than by the events of Roman history, let alone classical political philosophy, which had little impact on them except in a negative sense. Quote, generally speaking, the ancients, in contrast to the American founders, appear to place considerably less emphasis on protecting individuals and their rights, rights to private property and family safety, to property, to freedom of religion, and to the pursuit of happiness. End of quote. Also, he argues, I believe correctly, that the classical philosophers put virtue above fraternity and liberty. The framers, while they discussed the need for virtue and religion, always carefully undefined, did so as defenders of political and economic freedom. Virtue was therefore instrumental for them, a means of achieving social stability and progress, liberty and security. This was also their view of religion. In this, they were not fundamentally different in principle from Robespierre, who established a formal civic religion of nature and reason in the midst of the terror in 1794. De-Christianization was morally debilitating. Robespierre concluded it had to be followed by the establishment of a new civic religion. He knew that men needed to believe in God's sanctions in order to keep them obedient. Talman calls this impulse, quote, cosmic pragmatism. The major figures among the framers were wiser men than Robespierre and more influenced by traditional Christianity, but they were Enlightenment men to the core. Their veneer and their constituencies were different from those of the French revolutionaries, but not their ideology. Their religion was civic religion. The difference is they saw civic religion as a decentralized individual matter rather than a state affair. It was to aid the national government, but not be part of the national government. John Adams, a theological Unitarian, wrote in his autobiography, presumably for himself and not the electorate, quote, One great advantage of the Christian religion is that it brings the great principle of the law of nature and nations. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, and do to others as you would that others should do to you, to the knowledge, belief, and veneration of the whole people. Children, servants, women, and men are all professors in the science of public as well as private morality. No other institution for education, no kind of political discipline, could diffuse this kind of necessary information so universally among all ranks and descriptions of citizens. 
The duties and rights of the man and the citizen are thus taught from early infancy to every creature. The sanctions of a future life are thus added to the observance of civil and political, as well as domestic and private duties. Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude are thus taught to be the means and conditions of future as well as present happiness. End of quote. Not a word about the atonement, not a word about the sacraments. The entire passage is geared to the requirements for public morality. The churches are viewed as effective educational institutions. No other institution can accomplish this task more effectively. Hence, Christianity is a good thing socially. The whole perspective is civic. The right wing of the Enlightenment. Rushduni's greatest historiographical error was this. He always downplayed the Enlightenment influence on 18th century American history. At the heart of the Enlightenment's right-wing branch, philosophically, the Scottish Enlightenment, and also its left-wing branch, the French philosophes, but above all, Rousseau, was the doctrine of natural law, whatever it is to be restricted by the state, and natural rights, what man can naturally do. This commitment to natural law theory, in fact, was what made both branches part of the same movement. It would not be far from wrong to summarize the origins of the two wings as follows. The Scottish Enlightenment philosophy was developed by Presbyterians who had abandoned Christian orthodoxy, but who maintained certain outward forms of belief by substituting a new humanistic theory of contracts for the Calvinistic theory of covenants. Continental Enlightenment philosophy was developed by graduates of Roman Catholic institutions who had abandoned Christianity altogether and who substituted the state for the church as the agency of social salvation. End of quote. The former were closet heretics, the latter were open apostates. The former were philosophical nominalists, the latter were philosophical realists. The former were methodological individualists, the latter were methodological collectivists. The former saw the natural development of society as the unplanned evolutionary outcome of voluntary legal contracts among men, contracts capable of revision. The latter saw society as a voluntary metaphysical contract that cannot subsequently be broken after consummation, and which is incarnate in the state. Both groups sought to establish a new order of the ages by substituting their respective forms of the covenant for the biblical forms. The Commonwealthmen Balin traces the ideological origins of the American Revolution to five sources. Classical antiquity, especially Rome, the writings of Enlightenment rationalism, Locke, Rousseau, Voltaire, Grotius, Montesquieu, Vettel, Pufendorf, Beccaria, English common law, Puritan covenant theology, and most important, the old Whigs of the early 18th century. These were the Commonwealth men, the intellectual heirs of those dissenting religious and humanist groups that made their appearance during the English Civil War of 1642 through 1660. The early 18th century Commonwealth men appealed back to the tradition of religious toleration that had been established by Oliver Cromwell during the Puritan Revolution. His new model army was filled with religious dissenters, and Cromwell gave them what they wanted, religious freedom. He created a Trinitarian civil government in which all Protestant churches would have equal access politically, and the state would be guided by the, quote, common light of Christianity. End of quote. I call this Athanasian pluralism. This outraged the Presbyterian members of the Westminster Assembly, which met in 1643 to 1647 to hammer out the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms. It outraged Presbyterians Thomas Edwards, whose 60-page treatise tells the story, Grangrena, or a catalog and discovery of many of the errors, heresies, blasphemies, and pernicious practices of the sectaries of, of this time, 1645. His list included 16 heretical sects, independents, brownists, were pilgrims, millenaries, antinomians, 
Anabaptists, Arminians, Libertines, Familists, Enthusiasts, Seekers, Perfectionists, Socians, Arians, Anti-Trinitarians, Anti-Scripturists, and Skeptics. The spiritual heirs of these groups became the Whig Commonwealthmen. For the most part, their most prominent figures were non-Trinitarian in their theology, uninterested in questions of theology and ecclesiology, except insofar as these questions in any way interfered with political liberty as they saw it. Their influence in the colonies was all-pervasive, writes Balin. Quote, the colonists identified themselves with these 17th century heroes of liberty, but they felt closer to early 18th century writers who modified and enlarged this earlier body of ideas, fused it into a whole with other contemporary strains of thought, and above all, applied it to the problems of 18th century English politics. But more than any other single group of writers, they shaped the mind of the American revolutionary generation. Some were liberal latitudinarian Anglicans, some were non-religious, some were members of non-conformist churches. Their leaders included Joseph Priestley, the chemist and theologian, and his friend Richard Price, the economist and theologian, who were both hostile to Trinitarianism. Their influence in America increased as anti-English activities escalated after 1770. These were the radical Republicans. Their intellectual roots can be traced back to Harrington. New left historian Stott and Lynn summarizes the dissenters' views. Quote, Participation in radical Protestant church life critically influenced the dissenters' ideas. Further, their refusal to swear prescribed religious oaths excluded them from political office and university employment. From 1750 through the American Revolution, the dissenters poured forth books and pamphlets which cited one another profusely and cumulatively expounded a common doctrine. This was the doctrine of natural law, made by God, evident to every man, consonant with the best parts of the traditional law of England, but superior to any law or government which was arbitrary or unjust. When on the brink of open rebellion, Americans needed an intellectual resource more potent than the rights of Englishmen to justify actions so obviously seditious as the Boston Tea Party. They turned to the rights of man teaching of their staunchest English supporters, writes Clinton Rossiter, quote, not until the argument shifted substantially away from English rights and over to natural justice did Price and Priestley influence American minds. End of quote. This hostility to religious oaths as a requirement of holding political office was basic to the dissenters and Protestant nonconformists generally, who faced an oath of allegiance to the Church of England and not just to the Trinity. The same hostility later flared up at the Constitutional Convention, as we shall see. The intellectual basis of a crucial alliance in 1787 between dissenting Protestantism and incipient Unitarianism was the shared faith in natural law. Where did this faith come from? It should be clear that it did not come from Thomas Aquinas or medieval scholasticism generally. The framers did not read the scholastics, nor did many other Protestant thinkers of the 18th century. They were far more likely to read René Descartes or summaries of his thought. The Lure of Geometry Descartes' vision of a logical geometrical universe fascinated political thinkers throughout the 17th century. Thomas Hobbes' defense of the state's near absolute sovereignty in Leviathan, 1651, was surely governed by his Cartesian worldview, a political world analyzed in terms of mathematical precision. Belief in mathematical laws that govern the affairs of men, laws that can be discovered by the enlightened few, remained a tenet of continental enlightenment thought, especially in France. Nevertheless, more was needed than Descartes' mere theoretical assertions in order to make this mathematical vision a part of all educated Englishmen's thinking. French speculation was not sufficient to persuade these, quote, practical men of affairs. 
What was needed was a practical and seemingly irrefutable demonstration of the inescapable relationship between man's rigorous mathematical speculations and the physical operations of the external world. This was what Sir Isaac Newton's Principia gave to mankind in 1687. His work was part of a one-generation shift in worldview that transformed European thinking. This era was the beginning of both rationalism and romanticism, the 18th century incarnation of two sides of autonomous man's thinking, rationalism and irrationalism. In philosophy, the reaction was pantheism, especially in the works of Spinoza. In Trinitarian religion, a dual reaction was evident within a decade of Newton's death. The rise of Arminian Methodism in England and the revivalism of the Great Awakening in the colonies. In the colonial case, the authority of the established churches over the thinking of the laity, especially in politics, received a mortal wound from which it has yet to recover, especially in Puritan New England. Isaac Newton, the Trojan Horse The central figure in Enlightenment thought was Isaac Newton. This is a conventional view of the Enlightenment. There is little question that Newton was a touchstone for philosophy in the United States in the 18th century. When men spoke of nature with a capital N, they meant nature as interpreted by Newton, a world whose operations are governed by religiously neutral mathematics, either as a primary cause, autonomously, or secondary, under God. I call this the Unitarian worldview, a world in which the doctrine of the Trinity is superfluous scientifically. Isaac Newton was a secret Unitarian. Had he admitted this fact in public, he would have lost his job at Cambridge University, as his friend and associate, William Winston, did. Just as Newton had warned him, advising that he continued to deceive the public. Newton was the dominant intellectual influence in the 18th century, and he remained so until the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species in 1859. His mechanical model of a not-quite-autonomous cosmos was then stripped of its few traces of deity by his successors. His ideal so stripped was Unitarian, a world that can be understood by its effects in terms of reason rather than traditional theological confession. It is in this sense that I discuss the world of the framers as Newtonian. With Isaac Newton, we can mark the overwhelming triumph of Enlightenment faith in the English-speaking world. From 1690 to 1790, we can date a major and nearly self-contained intellectual era that laid the philosophical and cultural foundations of modern atheism. Because of what was done during that century, begun by Newton and ended by the French Revolution, and also because of what Darwin did in 1859, we live in a culture in which, for the first time in mankind's history, belief in God is optional. A world in which the, quote, option of not believing has eradicated God as a shared basis of thought and experience, and retired him to a private or at best subcultural role. The bulk of modern thought has simply dispensed with God, end quote. It began with Newton, of whom Alexander Pope wrote, quote, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, Let Newton be, and all was light. End quote. American Christians consented, step by step, to the transformation of this nation into a theologically pluralistic republic. It began with natural law theory. The Puritans had been comprised to some degree by natural law doctrine from the beginning, and this influence increased after the magisterial successes of Isaac Newton in the field of natural philosophy. They did not know that he had abandoned Trinitarian Christianity and had become an Arian, although a very private and cautious one, at least a decade before his Principia in 1687 was published. They also were unaware of another side of Newton, a side which was suppressed by his followers immediately after his death and which was then forgotten for two and a half centuries and is known only to highly specialized historians today, his occultism. Newton was a dedicated practitioner of the occult art of alchemy, 
This has been known by Newton specialists ever since 1947. John Maynard Keynes, the Cambridge University economist, bought half of Newton's papers at auction in 1936 and discovered this fact. He wrote an article on this in 1941. It appeared posthumously in 1947. Keynes identified Newton as, quote, the last of the magicians, the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians, end quote. Why did he call him this? Quote, because he looked on the whole universe and all that is in it as a riddle, as a secret which could be read by applying pure thought to certain evidence, certain mystic clues which God had hid from the world to allow a sort of philosopher's treasure hunt to the esoteric brotherhood, end quote. Day and night, Newton would pursue his alchemical experiments, sometimes without eating. His experience in alchemy were as rigorous and as detailed as his other scientific experiments, writes Francis Yates, the remarkable historian of early modern occultism, quote, Newton attached equal or greater importance to his alchemical studies than to his work in mathematics, end quote. He actually believed that in discovering the law of gravity, he was rediscovering an ancient secret truth which had been known by Pythagoras. The academic community did not learn of Newton's alchemy until Keynes' revelation. Three decades later, in 1974, Betty Dobbs wrote a book on the subject, The Foundation of Newton's Alchemy, or The Hunting of Green Leon. But this book did not become widely known. Then Michael White's book, Isaac Newton, The Last Sorcerer, 1998, which discusses this aspect of Newton's career. The book received considerable academic publicity. That it took over a half century for this story to filter down to the upper division college level from the graduate seminar level is not really remarkable. The secularists who dominate academia found the information unacceptable until quite recently. They still do not like to think about it, but at least they occasionally do think about it these days. Only since 1999 has the Newton Project begun to organize and publish his papers online. Newton's alchemy is mentioned briefly by Lynn Thorndike in his eight-volume set, A History of Magic and Experimental Science, 1958, which indicates either his lack of interest or his hope that his readers would lack interest. In a study this large concerning a man so important, on the very topic this study is supposed to be dealing with, such an omission is not accidental. It is systematic. Most historians have downplayed the importance of alchemy in his life and thought. They still see him more in terms of the rationalistic picture painted by his immediate successors. They do not understand or choose to ignore the deeply mystical and magical goal of alchemy, the self-transcendence of the alchemist. The alchemist, by a manipulation of the elements, seeks to achieve a leap of being, what today would be called an evolutionary leap. The familiar legend of the Philosopher's Stone, the alchemical means of transforming base metals into gold, neglects the real goal which this transformation merely symbolizes, the transformation of the alchemist and by implication and representation of humanity. Quote, gold, we repeat, is the symbol of immortality, end quote. To dabble in alchemy, even for intellectually technical reasons, is to come very close to the messianic impulse of the deification of man. It is like dabbling in magic. It has consequences. One of the consequences was the French Revolution. Margaret Jacobs' radical enlightenment is clear about the spread of pantheistic versions of Newtonianism into France through the Netherlands and Freemasonry. With it came a proclivity for the old Neoplatonic Renaissance view of man, a view analogous to alchemy's view of man. They both begin with the presupposition of magic and hermeticism, quote, as above, so below, end quote. There is an ontological relationship between man and the cosmos, a chain of being. Muldern put it this way, quote, It means that there is an absolute, although hidden, concordance between the lower and higher worlds, the key of which lends to the magus and calculable powers, end quote. 
Thus, by manipulating the cosmos, the initiate can change the nature of man, for example, environmental determinism. On the other hand, by manipulating something near at hand, he can affect something far away, for example, voodoo. One manipulates the external elements in order to change the nature of man. One also changes the nature of individual men in order to transform the environment. E.M. Butler describes the goal of magic. It is also the goal of social engineering. Quote, the fundamental aim of all magic is to impose the human will on nature, on man, on the supersensual world in order to master them. End quote. Alchemy involves initiation, access to secrets not known to common men. The alchemist uses his chemicals in a kind of self-initiation process. The virtue of the alchemist is crucial to the outcome of the experiment. All chemical literature is filled with the theme of death and rebirth. Man is viewed as co-creator with God. This is a radically different conception from modern chemistry. The alchemist's procedures are seemingly similar to, yet radically different from, the chemist's procedures. He mixes chemicals in exactly the same way, again and again, waiting for a transformation. The chemist, in contrast, alters his procedure slightly if the experimental results repeatedly do not conform to his hypothesis. The main difference procedurally between alchemy and chemistry is in the technique of cause and effect. The chemist publicly verifies the validity of his experiment by specifying the conditions under which he can conduct the experiment so that others can duplicate the experiment's results. The alchemist, on the contrary, seeks to keep his procedure secret, as Newton did, and he expects most of these repetitions to produce no change. Then, after many attempts, after an unspecified series of repetitions of the mixing of the elements, there will be a discontinuous leap of being. The alchemist transcends himself, symbolized and verified by the transformation of the elements. This view of man and change has inevitable social implications. The alchemist sees himself as the first man of a new race, the representative in the present of a new people. It is an elitist view of social transformation. Rushduni's summary is correct, quote, The purpose of the alchemist was to create the conditions of chaos in order to further leap ahead in evolution. It is not at all surprising, therefore, that in the Enlightenment, alchemists were closely allied to and central to the forces of revolution. Revolution is simply the theory of social alchemy, end quote. In one sense, the intermediate goal of the alchemist is the same as the practical goal of the chemist, greater power over the environment through specialized experimental techniques. A detailed knowledge of mathematics is basic to both. A knowledge of the characteristic of normally inert substances is basic to both. The, the alchemist wants to transform man's very being. The chemist wants to transform man's environment and quality of life. Deism and Pantheism The Bible teaches that God created the world. He is not part of this world. He rules over it, yet he is present with it. He interacts with it. People pray to God. He answers. He responds to what men do in history. He brings rewards and punishments in history. The New Testament teaches that God sent his Son, who is divine, into history as a man. The Incarnation is the ultimate doctrine of the presence of God in history. So God is not part of the creation, yet he has participated in history. He is simultaneously transcendent to the world and present with it. This is point one of the biblical covenant model. In religions that have not been influenced by the Bible, God is seen either as transcendent to the world or immersed in it. God is therefore either distant from the world, and therefore he only rarely or never interacts with people, or else he is part of the world, and therefore he is not in a position to control events. In both cases, men are left as co-participants with God in bringing events to pass. God is seen either as a kind of cosmic backdrop to mankind's dominion over history, deism, or else a co-participant with mankind, pantheism.
A deistic god is a god of cosmic order. He created a self-sustaining universe, and then he departed. He is not trapped in or threatened by the flux of history. He remains at a distance. He is the architect of the universe, but he is not a resident in the universe. In contrast, a pantheistic god is a god of history, but he is not separate from history. A pantheistic god is identified with nature. He or she brings no laws to nature that are independent of nature and its processes. Neither a deistic god nor a pantheistic god speaks with absolute authority in history. A deistic god does not speak at all. A pantheistic god may speak through nature as nature, but he cannot omnipotently being his word to pass. This leaves mankind as co-ruler in history. One man relies on a deistic god to keep the universe running smoothly so that the man can get his work done. Another man relies on a pantheistic god to provide specific assistance for him, just so long as the man displays proper respect for nature or certain rituals. Ethics do not count in history. A deistic god pays no attention to man's dealings with men. Neither does a pantheistic god. A deistic god is a deistic god is the god of rationalism who rules over a predictable universe. He is not approachable by man. A pantheistic god is the god of irrationalism who is identified with an unpredictable universe. He is approachable by man through nature or through ritual, but he is not sovereign. These two views of God are in perpetual tension. This is because they are theological manifestations of two rival views of the universe, rationalism and irrationalism. Rationalism and irrationalism are inherent in all forms of non-Christian thought. One man, as, one man asserts the ability of man's mind to order the world. In reaction, other men assert the necessity of escaping this imposed order through forms of irrationalism. So whenever we find an assertion of ultimate rationalism, we can always find a counter-assertion of an offsetting irrationalism. Newtonian's Rationalism and Irrationalism Margaret Jacobs, de Margaret Jacobs demonstrates that there were two versions of Newtonianism, an official, Anglican, hierarchical, providential, scientific, and orderly Newtonianism, and a mystical, pantheistic, republican, and ultimately revolutionary Newtonianism. His rational-irrational division is cut too sharply between the modern Whigs and the radical Whigs. She makes it appear as though the irrationalism and the nature of mysticism of the radical Whig pantheists had not been part of Newton's worldview, but they were, although not in the official public system. Newton's commitment to alchemy reveals the dualism of his thought. The official, publicized side of his scientific system was rationalistic in a transcendent, deistic sense, but there was a dark and troubled side of his beliefs and practices that led him into experiments that had originally been grounded in the mysticism of pantheism of Renaissance Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is always mystical. Newton's system was not intellectually self-sustaining on the basis of its formal scientific categories. As I shall show, Newton had to appeal to a providential transcendent God, which he publicly identified with the God of the Bible in order to sustain his system metaphysically. But it was equally easy for the pantheists of the radical enlightenment to appeal to a God inerrant in nature. Such an appeal was an intellectual necessity. Jacob writes, Absolutely central to the radical enlightenment is the search for the philosophical foundations of a new religion. End of quote. The debate between the two views of Newtonianism ceased after 1859. Darwinism made unnecessary the hypothesis of any god, an appendage with no further scientific usefulness. But because so many Christians in the late 17th century and 18th century had grounded their philosophical defense of Christianity on Newton's natural theology, Darwin successfully destroyed this foundation of Christianity. Providentialism Newton was a providentialist. He believed in God's creation of the universe out of nothing. It is inevitable running down, and the need for God occasionally to intervene in nature to keep the cosmic clock running in good order. 
In his General Scolium, which he added to Part Three of Principia, quote, the system of the world, in 1713, a quarter century after the Principia first appeared, he insists that, quote, the six primary planets are revolved about the sun in circles co-centric with the sun, end of quote. Notice his use of the passive voice, are revolved. In other words, revolved by something or someone. He immediately tells us that it is someone, quote, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, end quote. He then formally rejects all pantheism, quote, This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as a lord over all, and on account of his dominion he is wont to be called Lord God, end of quote. The phrase, quote, soul of the world, end quote, is pantheistic. Quote, he is not eternity and infinity, but eternal and infinite. He is not duration or space, but he endures and is present, end quote. Motion is therefore imposed on matter by spiritual forces that are not innate to matter. The laws of nature are imposed laws, not laws that are inherent in nature. Newton's system of natural causation is deistic. It demands belief in an inherently impersonal God who reveals himself only in nature. This God can be known only through his attributes in nature. In Newton's system, there is no reliance on God's revelation of himself in Scripture. There is, of course, no mention of the Trinity, which Newton rejected. Newton insists, quote, We know him only by his most wise and excellent contrivances of things and final causes. We admire him for his perfections, but we reverence and adore him on account of his dominion. For we adore him as his servants, and a God without dominion, providence, and final causes is nothing else but fate and nature, end quote. In this sense, Newton's system is Unitarian. It points to a God who need not be considered both one and many. It points to a God who does not need to reveal himself verbally in order to be understood by scientifically trained men. The universe is mathematical, not covenantal judicial. This was Newton's public confession of faith. Metaphysical Architecture this Newtonian God exercises dominion, but his system gives us no warrant for believing that men can know him ethically through written revelation. We can only know him metaphysically and indirectly through his creation. We know him only through his manifestation physically and mathematically. Geometry was seen as the common language among educated men. Quote, if God was to be discerned in the creation at all, writes Bajant and Lay, it was not in the multiplicity of forms, but in the unifying principles running through these forms and underlying them. In other words, God was to be discerned in the principles of shape, determined ultimately by the degrees and angle, and by number. It was through shape and number, not by representation of diverse forms, that God's glory was held to be manifest. And it was in edifices based on shape and number, rather than on representational embellishment, that the divine presence was to be housed. This is one reason why Newton was so fascinated with dimensions of the temple built by Solomon. The temple was seen as a metaphysical representation of God's cosmos, not as the place where the tablets of the law of God resided in the Ark of the Covenant, where his glory cloud resided. The temple was seen more as a talisman than as a place of ethical worship. The origins of this geometrical religion can be traced back to the ancient world. It was kept alive in the West by both rabbinic Judaism and Islam. Quote, the synthesis of shape and number is, of course, geometry. Through geometry and the regular recurrence of geometric patterns, the synthesis and shape and number is actualized. 
Through the study of geometry, therefore, certain absolute laws appeared to become legible, laws which attested to an underlying order, an underlying design, an underlying coherence. This master plan was apparently infallible, immutable, omnipresent, and by virtue of those very qualities, it could be construed, easily enough, as something of divine origin, a visible manifestation of the divine power, the divine will, the divine craftsmanship. And thus geometry in both Judaism and Islam came to assume sacred proportions, becoming invested with a character of transcendent and imminent mystery. The Roman architect Vitruvius recommended the establishment of collegia of builders. Quote, Let the altars look to the east, he said. The architect is to become, in effect, a kind of magus. Geometry was at the heart of his office. Quote, in this respect, too, Judaism and Islam were to converge with classical thought. For was not architecture the supreme application and actualization of geometry? Was it not in architecture that geometry in effect became incarnate? It was then in structures based on geometry, with no embellishment to distract or deflect the mind, that God's presence was to be accommodated and worshipped. The synagogue and the mosque, therefore, were both based not on decoration, but on geometric principles, on abstract mathematical relationships. And the only ornamentation allowed in them was of an abstract geometrical kind. The maze, for example, the arabesque, the chessboard, the arch, the pillar or column, and other such pure embodiments of symmetry, regularity, balance, and proportion. There was a revival of scholarly interest in Vitruvius during the Renaissance. This vision of the architect as Magus goes back to Plato's Timaeus. The creator is equated with the architect of the universe. The tecton is the craftsman. The architecton is the master craftsman. The architecton created the universe by means of geometry. There is little doubt that geometry, and specifically Pythagorean geometry, was basic to Plato's teachings. Professor Karl Popper has identified Plato as the founder of the geometrical theory of the world. While the designer of the Cheops Pyramid seems to possess a better claim on this title, surely Plato has been the more influential historically. He saw the master of geometry as fundamental to the philosopher king's creation of a politically centralized social order and his control over the affairs of mankind. So have his more pantheistic spiritual heirs. Bajant and Lay argue that such a Neoplatonic and Hermetic theology was of necessity a cult, hidden during the Middle Ages. It could be transmitted safely only within a secret fraternity. The stonemasons were one such fraternity. Here were the seeds of the latter speculative Freemasonry. This Newtonian impulse is basic to understanding the close association of Newton's philosophers in the Royal Society and the spread of reconstituted Freemasonry after 1717. Freemasonry worshipped geometry even as the Principia had rested on geometry to prove its case. There was another aspect of this theology of geometry, the search for God in history. God's transcendence is manifested by geometry, but this was not sufficient. God had to make himself manifest to man. Again, geometry was the key. This was the reason for the fascination with Solomon's temple, write Bajan and Lay. Quote, Within this esoteric tradition of initiated masters, sacred geometry was of paramount importance, a manifestation, as we have seen, of the divine. For such masters, a cathedral was more than a house of God. It was something akin to a musical instrument, an instrument tuned to a particular and exalted spiritual pitch, like a harp. If the instrument were tuned correctly, God himself would resonate through it, and his imminence could be felt by all who entered. But how did one tune it correctly? How and where did God specify his design requirements? Sacred geometry provided the general principles, the underlying laws. End quote. Geometry was not enough. Music was not enough. 
There must be intellectual content to this divine imminence. There must be ethical content, including the assurance of personal salvation, itself defined as presence with God in eternity. This is what scientific Newtonism could not provide. The creation of speculative Freemasonry, a guild open to men without any connection to stonemasonry, was a major theological and institutional attempt to provide this assurance, but within the geometrical worldview of Newtonian science. A Distant God The God of Newton was not the God of the Bible. It was the God of deists. It was the cosmic clockmaker rather than the sovereign judge of all men in history and in eternity. It was this concept of God that persuaded European intellectuals in the 18th century. Any attempt to argue that this God was not the biblical God was doomed to failure. Before Darwin, this false connection left men under the social and political dominion of those who had rejected the Bible as the final voice of earthly authority. After Darwin, society was under the dominion of men who were not even willing to acknowledge the existence of the stripped-down God of Newtonianism. The Newtonian system, being Unitarian Socinian, theologically and epistemologically, left mankind without a personal, covenantal God who intervenes in history in order to meet the needs of mankind. At best, Newton's God intervenes to meet the needs of a disjointed universe. This Newtonian God really was the distant and transcendent God of older high school textbook accounts of deism. There was insufficient presence of this Newtonian God with his people. He was all system and no sanctions. The parallel quest for an imminent God led a segment of the Newtonian movement back into the pantheism's mystical paths. Any segment of Newtonianism that did not go down these paths eventually headed to the far shores of atheism. Newton's God of gravity, influence at a distance but without physical connection, was too little for the pantheists and too much for the atheists. This god of gravity became even too much for Newton to bear as time went on. Like a dog returning to its vomit in the second edition of Optics, 1717, he once again returned to his experimentally untenable theory of the ether that fills all intermediary spaces. He hoped to find a way to explain physical attraction at a distance. He had offered his theory of the ether in an early paper to the Royal Society in 1675, a paper which had been cogently attacked by Robert Hooke. Newton had defended this ethereal theory in Book 4 of the 1693 manuscripts Optics, but he later concluded that the existence of the ether could not be verified, so he did not publish this section in the first edition of 1704, but he capitulated in 1717, disinterring the theory from its resting place in the quiet graveyard of the unverifiable hypotheses, thereby converting his system into what could later stand alone as a mechanistic theory of the cosmos and its interconnected physical operations. Christensen calls this problem of the ether Newton's, quote, 30-year nightmare, end quote. Friction in this hypothetical universe, filled with a substance, ether, made it necessary for Newton to hypothesize the need for God to intervene periodically to restore this insufficiently harmonious system to full harmony. Burt describes this view of God, the cosmic plumber. This God went down the scientific drain in the 19th century. Newton could have concluded instead that the universe will simply run down over time, but this entropic worldview did not appear until the mid-19th century. This was the price of Newton's materialism, which Samuel Clark had predicted would eventually lead to atheism. It was a price that 19th century atheists paid enthusiastically. That, however, was a century and a half in the future. Coyrie concludes, At the end of the 17th century, Newton's victory was complete. The Newtonian God reigned supreme in the infinite void of absolute space in which the force of universal attraction linked together the atomically structured bodies of the immense universe and made them move in accordance with strict mathematical laws. In the 18th century, this sounded impressive to the educated public. Mechanism, atheism, and entropy came later, long after Christians had hitched their epistemological wagon to Newton's bright shooting star.
The Return of Pantheism. Van Til writes of Platonic thought that its deism, world of fixed ideas, and its pantheism, world of sense perception, were correlative. In all of Plato's methods, he took for granted that all things were at bottom one. Even when he deemed to be abstracting the ideal world from the sense world so far that they seemed to have nothing to do with one another, Plato was not denying the assumption of an underlying unity of all reality. In his most deistic flights, Plato was pantheistic still. Deism and pantheism are at bottom one. The same was true of Newtonianism. Newtonianism was officially deistic. The, quote, establishment Newtonians, including Newton, had no use for pantheism. They did not want a revival of Giordano Bruno's magic or speculations regarding a world soul. Nevertheless, pantheism could not be successfully overcome by the Newtonian moderate Whigs, given the reality of Newton's heavy Socinian emphasis on the absolute transcendence of God. The unsolved theological problem for Newton was imminence. Where is God's personal presence in the world? Puritans and Presbyterians possessed a consistent answer to this problem, one based on the doctrine of the Trinity. We see this in the Presbyterian Statement of Faith, the Westminster Confession, 1646, and the New England Puritans' adaptation of that confession, the Savoy Declaration, 1658. First and foremost, God is transcendently in control of all things, the doctrine of covenantal providence. This same God is also present with his people in the person of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in the hearts of regenerate men, and who enables both regenerate and unregenerate to perform good works. He gives his people new hearts. Quote, those who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. End quote. God interacts with mankind in history, for he had been a man in history, and in his perfect manhood, he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. God is present representatively in the Bible, the revealed word of God in history, and also in his church. In contrast to the Puritans' concept of cosmic personalism stands Newton's cosmic impersonalism. His was a halfway covenant cosmology. Relying on the intellectual residue of Puritanism, he denied the power thereof. Newton was not a Trinitarian. His cosmology did not allow for ethical interaction between God and man. And even his scientific peers resented his discussion of God's direct interventions to shore up the rusting cosmic clock. The writings of deistic Newtonians such as Voltaire were far more visible and influential in French intellectual circles than the literature of the pantheistic Newtonians. Yet, in the final analysis, the pantheists triumphed in the terror. Irrationalism empowered rationalism. The religion of bloody revolution overcame the religion of rational democracy. In Newtonian rationalism, Van Til would say, there lay hidden a Newtonian irrationalism, as it is true of every form of rationalism. Pantheism simply made this implicit irrationalism more visible to a handful of Masonic initiates. Newton's Socinian providentialism ultimately contained the seeds of its own destruction. It could not resolve the problem of the one and the many, structure and change, mathematics and matter. It could not explain why mathematics, an artful creation of man's intellect, should have such a close correlation with the operations of the external world. This modern faith in mathematics as a means of exercising power over nature is, in the words of Nobel Prize-winning physicist Eugene Wigner, an unreasonable faith. Pantheism led a furtive, underground existence in English thought during the 18th century. This did not mean that pantheists were irrelevant to events, it just means that they were not open in their intellectual defenses of the system. Jacob's studies indicate that pantheism spread from England to the Netherlands and from there into France. On the continent, this became part of the occult underground that eventually produced the French Revolution. Atheists clearly won the battle after Darwin, but in the 20th century, there was a successful boring from within at the very heart of secular Newtonian temple, quantum mechanics. 
This sent a signal to the pantheists that the atheists in the temple can no longer defend the outskirts of their empire. Since about 1965, the pantheists and mystics have begun to make a serious assault on the fringes of atheism's institutional empire. The fact that Frances Yates could find a mainstream publisher for her revisionist study of the pantheistic magic of Giordano Bruno had a great deal to do with the paradigm shift that began in the mid-1960s, a move towards irrationalism and mysticism. Pantheists moved out of the underground, but they had always been there, working to provide what rationalism cannot provide, freedom and meaning in a world governed by mathematics. Van Til argued that throughout his career that there was a secret pact between rationalists and irrationalists against the God of the Bible. He said they support themselves by taking in each other's washing. The Triumph of Natural Law Theory Revent Love's summary of the impact of Newtonian thought is crucially important in understanding the nature of 18th century science, religion, and social theory. Quote, in practice, in the long run, the Newtonians only played into the hands of the deists against whom they wanted to fight. And the atheists, who at the time were a more chimera than a real danger, though their time came in the second half of the century. The Arianism widespread among them, which was accepted, for example, by Newtonian himself, Clark, and most naturally by William Whiston, is an undisputable sign that the view of God held by these people was primarily oriented on the book of his works. Above all, however, moralistic ethics, already a living legacy of humanistic theology, gained an additional foundation in the new philosophy, which made it increasingly independent of the Bible, and thus more and more independent of theology generally." End of quote. Richard Westfall is even more specific about the intellectual role of natural religion. Quote, "...natural religion was supposed to be the sure defender, yet in the end the defender turned out to be the enemy at the gates." End of quote. None of this was suspected by the literate Christian public in the early 18th century. Surely it was not suspected by the Reverend Cotton Mather, who's a Christian philosopher, 1721, is a long track praising Newton's system. It was not suspected by John Witherspoon when he began his first lecture on moral philosophy in 1768. Quote, Dr. Clark was one of the greatest champions for the law of nature, but it is only since his time that the shrewd opposers of it have appeared. End of quote. Or when he said, quote, Yet perhaps a time may come when men treating moral philosophy as Newton and his successors have done natural philosophy may arrive at a greater precision. End quote. Yeats is correct about the cover up of Newton's alchemy. Quote, Modern science, beginning its victorious career, had blotted out the immediate past. End of quote. By the early 18th century, natural law doctrines were universally accepted by all educated men in the colonies. It was by means of the twin doctrines of natural law and the autonomy of man's reason that the Enlightenment's intellectual conquest of America took place. Historian Keith Thomas writes, quote, the, triumph of the, quote, the triumph of the mechanical philosophy meant the end of the animistic conception of the universe, which had constituted the basic rationale for magical thinking. End of quote. The Newtonian pantheist animus moved underground. This inherently mechanical Newtonian worldview also in principle meant the end of the Christian conception of the universe with its doctrine of cosmic personalism, providence with miracles. Again, citing Thomas, quote, the mechanical philosophy of the later 17th century was subject to the doctrine of special providences to a good deal of strain. Under its influence, many writers tended to speak as if God's providence consisted solely in the original act of creation and that thereafter the world had been left to be governed mechanically by the wheels which the Creator had set in motion. End quote. This view was the outlook of English deism, which also was steadily adopted by liberal Arminian Anglicans. They became its promoters, as did many of the dissenters, writes Margaret Jacob. 
Quote, Eventually, the more ingenious clergy, largely of Protestant Europe, realized that it would be necessary to construct a new Christian religiosity based in large measure on mechanical assumptions. That was precisely the synthesis developed by moderate Anglicans who had been forced under the impact of the English Revolution to rethink the relationship between natural order, society, and religion. Eventually, all progressive European Christians, from the German philosopher Leibniz to the Cartesian priest Melibranchi, would be forced to restructure the philosophical foundations of Christianity to conform to one or another version of the new science. It is hardly surprising that liberal Anglicanism, wedded as it was by the 1690s to Newtonian science, took the lead in this enterprise, end of quote. Earlier she had written, quote, The linkage they forged between liberal Protestantism and early Newtonianism was never entirely broken during the 18th century. The latitudinarian proponents of early Newtonianism had succeeded in resting their social ideology on the model provided by the Newtonian universe, end of quote. There is great irony here, she says, given the humanistic society that emerged as a result of their worldview. Quote, the society that the latitudinarians wished to create was to be Christian and godly in the biblical sense of those terms. Their vision of history had been conditioned by the Reformation, and they believed themselves to be preparing Englishmen for the millennial paradise. End of quote. These were not strictly Enlightenment men. They were transitional figures, 1680 through 1720. As time passed, the differences separating liberal Anglicans from Whig Commonwealthmen became political rather than theological. A new common ground theologically became possible because of the new science. Arminians, Calvinists, and dissenting Socinians all could agree on the nature of the relationship between the Creator and the heavens. That relationship was Newtonian, which was inherently deistic. Deism and Christianity We are wise to mark the growth of deism with the triumph of the Newtonian worldview. This outlook was not limited to nature any more than Darwin's worldview is. Russell Kirk's summary of deism is accurate. Deism was neither a Christian schism nor a systematic philosophy, but rather a way of looking at the human condition. The men called deists differed among themselves on many points. Thomas Paine often was called an atheist, but is more accurately described as a rather radical deist. Deism was an outgrowth of 17th and 18th century scientific speculation. The deists professed belief in a single supreme being, but rejected a large part of Christian doctrine. Follow nature, said the deists, as the Stoics had said before them, not revelation. All things must be tested by private rational judgment. The deists relied especially upon mathematical approaches to reality, influenced in this by the thought of Sir Isaac Newton. The deistic implications of the Newtonian system were first fully developed by the third Earl of Shaftesbury in his multi-volume characteristics of Men, Manners, Opinions, Times, 6th edition, 1738. He was the grandson of the enormously popular Whig political opponent of Charles II and James II and defender of parliamentary rights. The grandson was a close friend of John Locke. He regarded himself as Locke's friend and foster son, but he abandoned his Lockeanism late in life and returned to faith in Greek philosophy, especially Xenophon. Shaftesbury set the tone of the age of mild, non-revolutionary skepticism regarding Christianity. He rejected the Bible as a source of ethics, preached a God subordinate to independent ethical principles, and relied on Newton's worldview to defend his system. The Bible in the late 17th century, even in the liberal Protestant camp, was a principle of formal authority. Not so with the deists. Beginning with Shaftesbury, they proclaimed the autonomy of ethics. Shaftesbury, says Revenlow, connected ethics, quote, with the idea of harmony within the world as established by Newton, end quote. And then, quote, he showed that the revelation contained in the Bible and handed down by historical tradition could be dispensed with, end quote. 
It was this Newtonian view of the universe that influenced most of the leaders who organized the Constitutional Convention in 1787. But why did the voters accept the deistic work of the convention? Deism in the colonies as a separate religious movement was virtually non-existent prior to the ratification of the Constitution. Ethan Allen and Thomas Paine were the only famous deists, if in fact Paine was a deist rather than an atheist, in that era. Also, why were church members who attended the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and those who later voted to ratify the Constitution willing to accept a document that was clearly the theological product of deism? Christian historians have adopted three approaches to these questions. First, ignore or deny the fact that the Constitution is deistic, the strategy of self-deception. Second, argue that the religious presuppositions of the Constitutions can be equally agreed to by deists, Christians, and just about every other rational person of goodwill, the strategy of the myth of neutrality. Third, argue that the Constitution is essentially Christian, yet deists, by the grace of God, not only can't accept it, but they actually wrote it in God's way, the strategy of divine schizophrenia. The question is this, were the deists at the convention the intellectual schizophrenics, or the Christians who today defend existence of Christian roots for the Constitution by an appeal to its hidden or ultimate biblical principles. The second strategy seems most common today. Christian students of the Constitution insist that the Constitution is in conformity with commonly shared judicial principles, on the implicit or explicit assumption of the validity of some version of natural law theory. They begin with the misleading presupposition of the commonality of 2 plus 2 equals 4, just as the framers did. And from this, they conclude that political polytheism is valid. It does not even occur to them that the phrase 2 plus 2 equals 4 does not mean the same thing in a Christian theory of God-created reality as it does in a non-Christian theory of evolutionary reality. It does not occur to them that without the presupposition of the Trinitarian God of the Bible, it takes a gigantic leap of faith to conclude that 2 plus 2 equals 4. They still think in terms of 18th century Newtonianism rather than a 6-day creationism or modern quantum physics and chaos theory. They have not yet come to grips with Immanuel Kant, let alone Werner Heisenberg. By 1787, Newtonianism had diffused for a century through the English-speaking world in the name of natural theology. Christians had not studied Newtonian's Principia any more than modern humanists have studied Einstein's original essays on the photo effect, Brownian motion, and general relativity. They were not familiar with the book's technical details, but they had accepted Newton's vision of a mechanical, orderly universe, a view of the cosmos that was undergirded by a Unitarian deistic god who has made himself known primarily through mathematics and astronomy, a world whose operations can be discovered by scientifically trained men, irrespective of their theological views. Educated Westerners accepted this worldview during the 18th century. Writes Thomas, It did not matter that the majority of the population of the 18th century England had possibly never heard of Boyle or Newton, and certainly could not have explained the nature of their discoveries. At all times, most men accept their basic assumptions on the authority of others. New techniques and attitudes are always more readily diffused than their underlying scientific rationale. End of quote. The problem was, these attitudes had implications for politics, Unitarian implications. 18th century Christians were not ready to see what the Newtonian worldview of impersonal mechanical causation necessarily implied, the abolition of God's presence with and his direct intervention into his world. Thomas is correct, quote, Yet most of those who conceived of the universe as a great clock were in practice slow to face up to the full implications of their analogy, end quote. Not until Charles Darwin in 1859 destroyed the necessity and even the scientific acceptability of natural theology by removing the need of a divine clockmaker and cosmic purposefulness for explaining the orderliness of nature. 
And not until Van Til and a handful of other Christian philosophers explained what Kant's epistemological dualism and Darwin's epistemological monism had accomplished did this naive Christian attitude regarding natural law and its empire begin to erode, slowly, ever so slowly. The Newtonian Dynamic There is one additional aspect of Newtonianism that needs to be dealt with. Newton's nearly impersonal God is a Tory kind of God, distant, hierarchical, and preserving. His days of creating are over. He now is a preserver and a repairer of cosmic order. This was a transitional concept of God. Hume's skepticism undermined faith in this Tory God. Scientists systematically found ways of removing the need for this God by finding ways of autonomously shoring up nature's friction-bound autonomous order. Nevertheless, the idea of an orderly system of nature under the universal rule of mathematics remained, and remains, a powerful motivating factor for men in their quest to master nature, including man's own nature and society, by means of rigorous investigation and the application of practical science to the environment. Like the doctrine of predestination, faith, in which supposedly should make fatalists and pacifists out of Calvinists, who subsequently turn out to be a dynamic social force, so was Newtonian mathematical law. It delivered practical knowledge to man, and in doing so offered him the possibility of dominion and power. What was needed to infuse Newtonianism with power was a new dynamic. Also needed was a view of the possibility of man's ethical transformation, which could then produce social transformation. What was needed was a doctrine of the new man. Rousseau provided one version of this doctrine of human transformation. The American revivalists provided another. Both views rested on a doctrine of man as being more than transcendent to the mechanical laws of matter and motion. Both views, therefore, rested on a program of personal and social change that was beyond the boundaries of reason. The First Great Awakening The shift from rationalism to emotionalism in the life of colonial America can best be seen in the writings of Jonathan Edwards. He began with his youthful speculations on science. Quote, it is self-evident, I believe, to every man that space is necessary, eternal, infinite, and omnipresent. But I had as good speak plain. I have already said as much that space is God, and it is indeed clear to me that all the space there is not proper to the body, all the space there is without the bounds of creation, all the space there was before creation is God himself. End of quote. Yet he was to write that lengthy defense of sweet emotionalism, the treatise concerning the religious affections. René Descartes was the intellectual godfather of the youthful Edwards. God as space was clearly not Newtonian. But Newton was surely the intellectual godfather of the Edwards of, of the Great Awakening. Men needed confidence that God's millennial judgments on the world would not melt the predictable order of the universe. Newtonianism gave them this confidence. Men needed appearance that, after abandoning the, quote, legalism of the older covenantal Puritanism, there would be something to replace the shattered civil foundations. Lockeanism and its derivatives gave them this assurance. Quote, at the heart of the evangelical ethic, write Heimart and Miller, two master historians of the era, was the hope of human betterment, the vision of a community in which men instinctively, as it were, would seek the general welfare, end of quote. Calvinists knew better. In a world in which men are totally depraved, it takes more than instinct to persuade men to seek the common welfare. It takes civil law to restrain them. But 18th century Christians had no specific system of civil law to recommend in the name of God, so they recommended other law orders and sources other than the Old Testament. Conditions have not changed since then. Experience versus creeds. 
The heart of the theological problem with the Great Awakening was its abandonment of the biblical doctrine of the covenant. This led to an institutional crisis. When push came to shove, the proponents of the Great Awakening wanted a new Christian community based on warm, fuzzy feelings rather than creedal orthodoxy. They wanted emotionalism. The halfway covenant theology of New England was a complex theological invention to deal with the unforeseen outcome of requiring a prospective church member to relate his experience of his conversion as one basis of acceptance into the church. Halfway covenant theology, dominant for a century, was abandoned by the revivalists because they abandoned Puritan covenant theology altogether. They decided to abandon any test other than the conversion experience as the ultimate standard of church fellowship. Every other test was secondary, at least in practice. The experience of ecstatic rapture steadily replaced the historic creeds of the church as the basis of men's church communion in the thinking of the Calvinistic revivalists. There are Arminian colleagues readily agreed. This opened the door to Arminianism and then, when the fires cooled, to deism and rationalism and established, quote, hot gospeling as the basis of evangelism. The least common denominator principle took hold until people fell to their knees and barked like dogs for Jesus. In the next century, old-school Calvinist Charles Hodge referred to this as the leaven of enthusiasm. As he said, such outbursts were opposed by Jonathan Edwards, the Boston clergy, by Gilbert Tennant, and others, though initially not by George Whitfield. Hodge defended the Presbyterian Church's disciplinary structure and its essentially judicial, covenantal theology in opposing such antinomian outbursts of revivalism. Hodge spoke for the orthodox, hierarchical church of all ages against antinomian lawlessness when he wrote, quote, those under its influence pretended to a power of discerning spirits, of deciding at once who was and who was not converted. They professed a perfect assurance of the favor of God, founded not upon scriptural evidence, but inward suggestion. It is plain that when men thus give themselves up to the guidance of secret impressions and attribute divine authority to suggestions, impulses, and casual occurrences, there is no extreme of error or folly to which they may not be led. They are beyond the control of reason or the word of God. End of quote. He clearly had in mind Presbyterian revivalist Gilbert Tennant, a founder of the Log College, which became College of New Jersey in 1746 and finally became Princeton University in 1896. Tennant wrote The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, 1741. He accused his creed-proclaiming, jurisdiction-protecting fellow Presbyterians of being reprobates and old Pharisee teachers. They had, he insisted, exerted the craft of foxes and had displayed the cruelty of wolves. Their piety was worthless, he said. They were after money. The old Pharisees, for all their long prayers and other pious pretenses, had their eyes with Judas fixed upon the bag. End of quote. Judas' ministry was also partly legal. Tennant invoked the language of the senses in his diatribe, just as Edwards did. Quote, their conversion hath nothing of the Savior of Christ, neither is it perfumed with the spices of heaven. End of quote. Years later, he apologized publicly for his intemperate language, long after the damage had been done and the fires of enthusiasm had burned across the colonies. This is taste bud theology and aromatic creedalism, however loudly its proponent claimed that he was defending Calvinism. It is also self-consciously anti-clerical. This anti-clericalism was a common outlook among the itinerant preachers, many of them unordained men, who willfully invaded the territories of local colleges throughout the colonies, justifying this challenge to local church authority on the pretense that the local pastors had failed to preach a pure gospel. Worse, as Tennant's tirade shows, they accused pastors of not being converted men. They made few attempts to bring formal charges against these supposed apostate pastors in their respective denominations. They simply conducted non-denominational, non-worship public meetings in the local communities. The anti-clericalism, anti-denominationalism, and anti-creedalism of the Great Awakening became progressively more self-conscious as the movement spread intermittently across the colonies for more than two decades. 
The problem with the evangelists of the Great Awakening period, Hodge wrote a century later, was that they paid more attention to inward impressions than on the Word of God. The individualistic inwardness led to an institutional inclusivism that was based on personal experience rather than the Bible, creeds, and church sanctions. They screened their ranks in terms of outward signs of enthusiasm rather than profession of faith. If an honest man doubted his conversion, he was declared unconverted. If anyone was filled with great joy, he was pronounced a child of God. If they did not feel a minister's preaching, they maintained he was unconverted or legal. This was the problem in their eyes. The revivalists were voluntarists, individualists, and inclusivists. They were offended by the rules and procedures of organized churches. This analysis was made a century later by a critic, but Hodge's criticism was based on his knowledge of the historical sources within the denomination, minutes of the presbyteries, and his knowledge of other historical studies of the era. He understood the revivalist assault on the church. Tennant was ejected from the denomination in 1741. The emotionalists and the creedalists, rationalists as their opponents called them, could tolerate each other's fellowship no longer. The Presbyterian Church split in 1741. Philadelphia Synod, Old Side, and the New York Synod, New Side, the New Side, Semi-Creedalists, and the Old Side, Rigorous Creedalists, did not reunite until 1758. One result of this restored unity was the erosion of creedalism, culminating in the revision of the Westminster Confession in 1787. What happened to the Presbyterians during the First Great Awakening was parallel in Congregationalism, Old Lights versus New Lights. Tennant was not alone. Heimart has noted Edward's rationalistic aesthetics. Quote, Edward's turned to nature, not for refuge from the still, sad music of humanity, but because he believed that God had devised a world of natural beauty, where one thing sweetly harmonizes with another, end of quote. That view was widely shared in the colonies. Indeed, even Voltaire would have agreed. Where did Edwards get such an idea? From Newton, the master theologian of not quite perfectly harmonious nature. What Newtonianism did for American civil polity, experientialism eventually did for American ecclesiastical polity. Create a new judicial basis for communion and confederation. Unitarian rationalism and non-creedal Christian irrationalism joined forces in the second half of the 18th century, and the result was a new nation, conceived in neutrality and dedicated to the proposition that all church creeds are created equal. If anything other than verbal profession of faith and outward walk according to God's Bible-revealed law is suggested as a substitute requirement for church membership, the result is the creation of a distinction in membership based on this added requirement. If the added requirement is experience, then someone in the church will not meet this inherently undefinable standard. If experience becomes in any way a formal basis of membership, detailed creeds will then be seen as inherently divisive within the church, and the defenders of such creeds will be seen as narrow bigots. The supplemental standard will become the primary screening device in the eyes of those who believe that it is more than supplemental. This is what happened during the Great Awakening and its aftermath in the 1760s. The Great Awakening restructured church government as surely as it restructured civil government. Samuel Davies, a leader in Virginian Presbyterian circles, who succeeded Jonathan Edwards as president of the College of New Jersey, began in the late 1750s to urge a, quote, unity of affection and design among all of Virginia's dissenters, Baptists and Presbyterians. He argued that this unity would not be based on doctrine or logic, but on, quote, experimental and practical religion. In the revival of 1763, this was the basis of another call to Christian union. Christians were to be, quote, one in heart, one in affection, in attending to, quote, the same great concern, which was the work of redemption. Contrary to Heimart's assertion that the essentials of Calvinism were the new birth and experimental religion, there was nothing explicitly or even implicitly Calvinistic about this concern. There was clearly nothing Puritan. 
The Great Awakening was creating a new basis of Christian unity, experientialism, and a least common denominator creedalism. This unity could not be maintained ecclesiastically. Baptists were Baptists, Presbyterians were Presbyterians, and separated from their brethren until 1758. Where then was this hope for unity to be manifested? Civic religion. This would require a common view of civil law to match the ever leaner creedal confessions and the ever less covenantal conception of Christian society. This was reflected in the Presbyterians' steady acceptance of a practice they had never been comfortable with, public fast days. These days were a celebration of God's common moral law among nations. Heimart writes, By the 1770s, the notion of God's moral government of the nations had been fully translated by the Calvinist mind into its own interpretation of the course of empire. By the late years of the Revolution, Calvinists were urging thanksgiving in terms of, quote, the common laws of society that obligated all men to join in expressions of gratitude and felicity of communities as collective bodies. Over the course of 30 years, they had moved from disenchantment with the course of colonial history to a celebration of the fact that the saints, having engaged themselves in political affairs, had seemingly succeeded in imposing their moral law on American society. On the contrary, the Unitarians had imposed their view of the revelation-free moral law on the Calvinists and everyone else. The non-creedal Great Awakening, followed by the national spirit of the revolution against a common political enemy, had destroyed all traces of the Puritan Holy Commonwealth ideal. It had virtually destroyed its original internationalism, the city on a hill, and had seriously damaged its civil localism. Common ground, minimal creed religious experientialism had combined with common ground Newtonian rationalism to produce the national civil religion. There was a spirit of rebellion at the heart of the Great Awakening, against church authority and against state authority. It tore up the churches and it tore up the last remnant of the Trinitarian Holy Commonwealth ideal in New England. The individualists had organized against the particularism of the creeds. It unleashed the same forces that the revolution in England had unleashed a century later. This time, however, the wave of anti-creedalism could not be stopped. Short of the restructuring of civil government in New England, the spirit of spirit-filled individualism, so similar in effects to the spirit of pantheistic autonomy, coupled with the inevitable quest for some basis of fellowship outside the organized churches, even if this period lasted only for a year or two in a man's life, transformed men's thinking. They were never again willing to fight for Trinitarian oaths as the foundation of citizenship. The Great Awakening's one-generation spirit of rebellion washed away the biblical covenant ideal along with the last political remnants of that ideal. It is yet to be restored. New Theology, New Ecclesiology The revivalists in 1735 through 1755 did not ask themselves a crucial question. What would remain after the honeymoon fires of the revival cooled and theological strangers found themselves in ecclesiastical beds together? The answer was a new theology, a civil theology, common to vaguely defined and vaguely disciplined Christians. Rushduni noted in 1964 that there was a shift in the character of preaching as Puritanism declined. Colonial election sermons, quote, shifted from an attempt to preserve the integrity of the church to an attempt to preserve the integrity of civil government. The Holy Commonwealth was now increasingly civil government and Christianity rather than church and state or civil and ecclesiastical governments, end of quote. The process of secularization accelerated, especially during the Revolution. Some historians believe that the Great Awakening made the Revolution possible. I am one of them. The process of heating and cooling did take place. The fires of the Great Awakening spread across the face of the land from 1735 until the mid-1750s. But after the fires of revival went out and shattered ecclesiastical structures lay divided across the American landscape and soulscape, 
What other institutional structure could offer men the sense of fellowship, fraternity, and commonality that the churches no longer seemed able to provide? The advent of such a fraternity has been a neglected story, indeed the neglected story, of the transformation of the American Covenant. It is the story of the rise of Freemasonry. Edwards versus Covenant Theology Jonathan Edwards is sometimes viewed as the last of the Puritans. This is a mistake. He was not among the Calvinist ancients. He is better described as the first of the Calvinist moderns. Edwards' theology of experientialism helped to destroy Calvinist covenant theology in America, which is one reason why virtually all modern scholars praise him as the greatest theologian in American history. He abandoned, quote, legalism. He took predestination, humanistic rationalism, postmillennialism, and emotionalism, and he fused them into a non-covenantal theology. His theology was antinomian. But the biblical covenant model depends on the presence of God's Bible-revealed stipulations. Heimert is correct. Edwards repudiated the covenant as a meaningful concept. His itinerant Arminian imitators did not even begin with the older covenant model, let alone repudiate it implicitly as he did. Their spiritual heirs in the next generation were even more adrift covenantally in a new nation and a new society. By the 1780s, the nation was without a covenantal rudder. This vacuum was filled by a new covenant theology, Unitarian in content and political in application, as Unitarian theology generally is. From the Puritan founders and their requirement for experience as a mark of true conversion and church membership until the sign-out of 1662 and the halfway covenant, baptism but no Lord's Supper for grandchildren of members, took 30 years. From that synod to Solomon Stoddard's theology of open communion as a means of conversion took another 45 years. From Stoddard to his grandson Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening, it took 30 more years. By then, Calvinist covenant theology was dead or terminally ill. Experientialism had mortally wounded it in the 1630s and had buried it in the 1740s. From Edward's death in 1758, the year of Presbyterian reunion, to the ratification of the Constitution was another 30 years. Men need a covenant. The question is, which covenant? This book is basically a Trinitarian and covenantal development of a brief insight made by E.S. Cornwin in 1929, who is generally regarded as the most influential student of the Constitution in the 20th century. Corwin's original 1928 through 29 essays in the Harvard Law Review were published in 1955 as The Higher Law, Background of American Constitutional Law. Corwin traced the constitutional ideal of the ordered political universe back to Newton and Grotius, a 2 plus 2 equals 4 view of man's world. He got the idea from historian Carl Becker. Becker had traced the idea in part back to the Newtonian system of the world, the best model of government, an allegorical poem, 1728, published a year after Newton's death. The author was J.T. Desagulier. Becker unfortunately did not identify Desagulier, who was one of the most important forgotten men in 18th century Anglo-American history. He was Newton's hand-picked popularizer of his scientific system, the first paid scientific lecturer in modern history, and the founder, along with James Anderson, of modern Freemasonry. Philosopher Morton White rejects this Newtonian interpretation of the framers' thinking. His argument is negative. Corwin did not prove his case. This was a hardly persuasive argument in 1978, and today, after Margaret Jacobs' books, it is woefully out of date. But there are other acceptable ways of avoiding the Corwin-Becker thesis. The most academically effective way to do this is to adopt a strategy of silence regarding Newton, and then reproduce detailed citations from lesser subsequent figures who are influenced heavily by Newton, a fact which the author seldom mentions or even considers. The Strategy of Silence 
We see this strategy in the work of Forrest MacDonald. There is little doubt in my mind that MacDonald is the best informed historian of the origins of the U.S. Constitution. Yet in his book, Novus Ordo Seclorum, The Intellectual Origins of the Constitutions, in 1985, he mentions Isaac Newton only once, and then only in a list of names of famous people that appeared in a 1781 colonial oration delivered by an obscure figure, Thomas Dawes. MacDonald goes into great detail, as my teacher Douglas Adair used to do, regarding the influence of Coke, Bolingbroke, Montesquieu, Hume, Blackstone, Locke, Grotius, Vital, and dozens of long-forgotten figures. Yet the towering intellectual figure of the age, indeed the towering intellectual figure of the modern era, whose principia dates the advent of this era, the man who set the foundational paradigm of all modern scientific thought is not even discussed. Professor Adair was equally guilty of this neglect. It was Isaac Newton who, more than any other figure, made possible the culture-wide ideological shift of the West from Trinitarianism to Deism, and then from Deism to Atheism. It was Isaac Newton who, in his meticulous, geometrical, guarded way, turned the world upside down, ether or no ether. MacDonald is a representative of the best of humanist historians of the origins of the American Revolution and the Constitution. His mastery of the facts of the 1780s is impressive. He has read every colonial newspaper of the era. His mistake is in asking subordinate questions regarding subordinate figures. He ignores the source of the modern West's paradigm shift, Isaac Newton, and concentrates instead on its diligent developers in the limited field of political theory. He does not discuss the origin of the politics of the 1780s in the scientific laboratories of the 1660s. The story of the Constitutional Convention began in the mid-17th century in the sometimes furtive studies of about a dozen Freemasons. This group has come to be known retroactively as the Invisible College. This name was given to it by the young scientist Robert Boyle in 1646. He used the phrase repeatedly, also calling the group the Philosophical College. At least one member of the group, Elias Ashmole of Oxford's Ashmolean Museum fame, was a practicing magus and alchemist. This was in an era in which the practice of alchemy was a capital crime. With Charles II's restoration to the throne in 1660, the group succeeded in getting itself incorporated in 1660 by the king. Henceforth, the organization would be known as the Royal Society. Following Masonic doctrine, the group forbade theological issues to influence scientific discussion. This rule was honored, despite the fact that many of its members in the 17th century were Puritans. The philosophy of neutralism became dominant. Newton, also a practicing alchemist, was elected to membership in 1672. He used the Royal Society to extend his influence over British science. The same self-conscious rejection of theology and scientific debate dominated the emerging science of economics. By the time of the Constitutional Convention, this attitude was nearly universal among educated men. The acceptance of common ground scientific speculation was widespread. This also applied to what we would call political science. Ancients and Moderns What 18th century men believed that Newton had accomplished for the physical universe, explaining the physical cosmos without any appeal to the details of Christian theology, they also believed the human mind could do for the political universe. They believed that a well-crafted contractual document could produce the blessings of liberty and the reduction of the influence of political factions, as Madison asserted in Federalist 51. Hamilton had framed the question of questions in Federalist 1, quote, whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. End of quote. 
What the Federalists needed, politically speaking, was a crisis, or a looming discontinuity, or better yet, the appearance of a looming discontinuity, so that they could persuade voters to adopt the Constitution rather than drift along with the existing political order. Thus said Hamilton, quote, The crisis at which we are arrived may be regarded as the era in which that decision is to be made, end quote. Here was the great opportunity of a lifetime to impose a new system of a national civil government on the 13 mostly independent colonies. But what kind of order would this new order be? It would not be formally Christian, meaning covenantally Christian. There is no doubt that during the period after the revolution, the practical focus of the civil government became one of protecting individual liberty and property rather than protecting the institutions of Christian society, for example, sexual morality, even in once Puritan Massachusetts. Michael Leisnick's superb summary of the framers' outlook demonstrates that they held a modern view of politics, a view of politics that was analogous to Newtonian astronomy. Although the framers referred to Roman history, their minds were governed by a very different paradigm, especially when they sought to defend the work of the Constitutional Convention. Quote, with this new form of political science, Federalists sought to create a timeless form of politics, transcending any need for the lessons of the past, preventing any possibility of declension in the future. The American Constitution existed entirely in a theoretically perfect present. The discoveries of modern science had made it possible to bring the principles of the political realm into complete conformity with the laws of the natural world. Written in the, quote, language of reason and truth, based on principles as, quote, as fixed and unchangeable as the laws which operate in the natural world, the Constitution was intended to be a perfect system, quote, as infallible as any mathematical calculations. Secure in their scientific faith, Federalists waxed euphoric on the superiority of the new Constitution. It was, as one said, the best form of government that had ever been offered to the world. Whereas other schemes had fallen into corruption and decline, a perpetually balanced federal constitution seemed capable of continuing forever. With it, predicted and admiring Robert Davidson, the American states shall resemble the solar system, where every obedient planet moves on its proper path, never seeking to fly from nor even approaching the great attractive orb than the wise author of nature intended. The federal constitution was created to apply equally to every age, never running down, wearing out, or falling into disrepair. As far as these federalist writers were concerned, the new republic could continue in this perfect state forever, a system, Barlow rhapsodized, which will stand the test of the ages. Throughout the debates, federalists would continue to argue that the constitution was a theoretically perfect instrument. As the state conventions went on, however, they came to admit the cold hard truth so often propounded by the anti-federalists, that the Constitution, however excellent in theory, might well be flawed in practice. Equally important, they realized that the case for ratification could be strengthened by embracing the anti-federalist demand for an amendment procedure. Thus, in federalist rhetoric, experience began to undergo one final change, from experience as scientific truth to experience as scientific experimentation. This appeal to experience was no deviation from Newtonianism. Newton had admitted in Scolium that God must occasionally reimpose his will on a declining, friction-bound cosmic order. The universe is not a perfect, autonomous cosmic clock. Thus, the revised view of those who defended this modern view of the Constitution was really consistent with Newtonianism. Leisnick does not make this clear in his study. He does correctly point out that 18th century science accepted a dualistic view of science, theoretical permanence and practical improvement. Law must deal with change. Law is fixed. Change is not. Somehow, men must find a way to relate the two, both philosophically and institutionally. This dilemma is the continuation of the ancient philosophical problem of law versus flux, logic versus history, or as Van Til liked to put it, 
the static ice block of philosophy of Parmenides versus the fluctuating flowing river of Heraclitus. This is the fundamental antinomy of all humanist thought. Plato tried to reconcile the two, Van Til said, but he failed. Quote, Plato could not stop his ice cubes from becoming water unless he would freeze all the water into ice, end quote. This dualism between law and historical change cannot be reconciled apart from the doctrines of the Trinity, the creation out of nothing, and God's absolute providence over history in terms of his sovereign decree and plan. Ephesians 1.4, 2 Timothy 1.9 Once men abandon the Bible as God's only permanent word in history, they are caught between the false, tyrannical permanence of man's word and the chaotic flux of history. But this solution is not acceptable to those who reject the New Testament. A fundamental dualism between theoretical permanence and historical change is present in every philosophical system. There has to be a system of permanence that undergirds and gives coherence to all change. If nothing else, then at least a communication system based on grammar, fixed rules yet without allowance for change through usage. With regularity, there also has to be a way to deal with human experience. The framers were well aware of this dilemma, and they devoted considerable time and effort to studying the experience of political orders in the past especially classical politics. This was also a heritage of the Whig tradition. That paradigm was Newtonian. But for a dozen of the convention's members, especially the president, Newtonianism was filtered through his disciples, James Anderson and John Desagulier. Old Dilemma, New Wardrobe The fundamental problem of the political philosophy of the ancients reappear in the political philosophy of the moderns. Both of these humanist viewpoints are anti-Trinitarian and anti-Biblical covenant. There was no constitutional solution to the problems of political philosophy in either Federalist Whig-Newtonian Republicanism or Anti-Federalist Whig-Newtonian Republicanism. The sought for constitutional balance of the one and the many, apart from the Bible and the Old Testament case laws, is unattainable. Like Newton's universe apart from God's constant, active providence, the, quote, balanced constitution will inevitably move toward centralized tyranny, the fear of the Anti-Federalists, or toward dissolution, the fear of the Federalists. Both movements took place in 1861 through 1865. The Centralists won the intellectual battle of political philosophy on the military battlefields of the U.S. Civil War, and so did the bankers. The federal bureaucracy began to expand as never before after 1860, although it appears small in retrospect in today's bureaucratic world. Contrary to Madison's vision, but consistent with Madison's system after the 14th Amendment, 1868, had made judicially possible the increasing centralization of the nation, those new bureaucracies were geared to special interests in a diversifying economy. The framers believed that they had constructed a workable model, a fixed governmental system that would deal with man as he is, yet also encourage him to act in ways that are best for him and society. It had taken them less than four months to do this behind closed doors. The framers were almost messianic. They believed that such a constitution had never before been devised. The republics of Greece and Italy had failed, Hamilton said, for they had oscillated between tyranny and anarchy, the perpetual problem of the one and the many. But there is hope, he assured his readers. Quote, the science of politics, however, like most other sciences, has received great improvement. The efficacy of various principles is now well understood, which were either not known at all or imperfectly known to the ancients. End quote. Were this not the case, pessimism alone would be appropriate regarding republics, that is, quote, if it had been found impractical to have devised models of a more perfect structure, end quote. But the Federalist is a defense of a new day, a new way, a new model, a new order of the ages. This new order would be judicially non-Christian. 
These men saw themselves as architects of a new nation and a new order of the ages, Novus Ordo Seculorum. This identification with architecture was not a clever piece of rhetoric. Constitution building was, in their minds, analogous to the great work of a great architect. It was a new creation. It was a break from the past, a specifically Christian past. Yet there was a sufficient legacy from that past, including a millennial aspect, to persuade them that such an experiment would succeed. To make possible this hypothetically disinterested experiment in constructive politics, the Constitution removed religious test oaths as judicial requirements for judges and officers of the new national government. This, in and of itself, delivered the Republic into the hands of the humanists. Nothing else was necessary after that. From that point on, the secularization of America was a mopping-up operation. That operation is still in progress. Those being mopped up are unappreciative, but they cannot seem to identify when the turning point came. It came in 1788. Conclusion. The framers were Newtonians. So were most intellectuals in that era. From at least the time of Cotton Mather's booklet, The Christian Philosopher, 1721, Christian scholars have equated Newtonianism with biblical providentialism. This inability of Christian scholars to recognize a Unitarian worldview continues to hamper the development of a systematical biblical world and life view. The typical Christian college curriculum remains Newtonian wherever it is not Darwinian. The closer we get to the doctrines of man and society, the more dangerous Newtonianism becomes. MacDonald's neglect of Newton is matched by his far less well-informed equivalents in the Christian academic community. For well over a century, a handful of Christian conservatives have attempted to place the American Revolution within the context of Christian thought and culture, despite the steady exploration of both explicitly Christian thought, moral casuistry, and culture in the early 18th century. This approach can be somewhat successful with respect to certain moral defenses of the American Revolution itself, especially in sermons preached by pastors who had adopted the revolutionaries' defense of violence against Parliament. Even in this case, the Christian character of revolution's defenses was not without compromise. There must be a clear recognition of the effects of Newtonian natural law philosophy in the defenses of the best of the Christian political apologists. But a Christian apologetic is hopeless with respect to the ideological origins of the U.S. Constitution. Unfortunately, beginning with the unread red books, we have had a dedicated movement of Christian non-historians, would-be historians and lawyers pretending to be historians, who think that historical revisionism applied to the prevailing humanist textbook account of the Constitution is called for, not to show the conspiratorial basis of the judicial coup, which the humanists prudently ignore, but to show that somehow, if we just look closely enough, we will find traces of Christianity in the Constitution, to which I say, let us cut our losses now. It is time to scrap this particular revisionist effort. It has produced nothing but confusion in the minds of Christians and ridicule from the humanists who have the footnotes on their side in this confrontation. What specialists need to do in the future is to examine the records of the Constitutional Convention as well as the Constitution's intellectual and institutional background. This will begin to open a long, closed book. This procedure must be done by Christian scholars in terms of a biblical presupposition. The quest for permanent political pluralism is inherently a demonic quest. This presupposition has been rejected by both sides, Christian and non-Christian. So we have yet to be presented with a serious study of the historical and theological origins of the U.S. Constitution. This book is little more than an outline of the work that needs to be done by several generations of presuppositionally self-conscious Christian researchers. For over two centuries, Christian historians have neglected to conduct such a detailed study of the origins of the Constitution. Most of them have accepted the view of the victors of 1788. 
The Constitution is a philosophically neutral, procedurally neutral, morally neutral, religiously neutral document that is somehow consistent with, quote, true Christianity. Yet it is also supposedly consistent with Christianity's rivals. If these assumptions are true, then Stoic natural law philosophers were right, Newtonian Unitarians were right, and Freemasons are right. There is a morally and theologically neutral system of fixed law that is both unchanging and accessible to the minds of rational men in the midst of history. The Constitution is the incarnation of this religion of neutrality. It is a shame that no other nation has understood this, we are told, by the defenders of original intent, who are running a two-front war against Darwinists with their doctrine of an organic, living, and evolving constitution, and against recalcitrant foreigners who resist accepting the American way of life and democratic freedom. Muslims in the Middle East are not enthusiastic about coming under a legal order that is consistent with Christianity. This is the perennial problem with religious pluralism. Members of those supernatural religions that reject the concept of religious pluralism resist being placed on an equal judicial footing with members of all other religions. This was the same objection that the early church had against the Roman Empire. Oliver Cromwell's version of Trinitarian political pluralism was derived from the Bible, the concept of an oath-bound civil government. His contemporary, Rhode Island's Roger Williams, secularized this position and universalized it by means of natural law theory. This is the theoretical foundation of modern political polytheism. James Madison and the Framers put forth a new national covenant based on Williams' model in 1787, and the voters' representatives ratified it in 1788. We still live under its jurisdiction. Quote by Robert A. Rutland, 1983. Madison could not pause to rest. His dominant role in drafting the Constitution and forcing the First Amendment upon a reluctant Congress in 1789 is well known. In the light of history, it would have been an irony had any other man performed the task. Certainly no one in the House of Representatives or the Senate could match his record as a fighter for religious freedom. Some 30 years later, Madison was still as concerned about the need for separation of church and state as he had been in 1774. Around 1832, he wrote a retrospective memorandum on the scenes of public life he had witnessed and also set down a few of his fears. Among the latter was a feeling that the danger of silent accumulations and encroachments by ecclesiastical bodies have not sufficiently engaged attention in the U.S., Warming to the issue, Madison called on the errant states to build an impenetrable wall separating the church and state, and thus make the example of your country as pure and complete in what relates to the freedom of the mind and its allegiances to its maker, as in what belongs to the legitimate objects of political and civil institutions. With Madison, the line between church and state had to be drawn with absolute firmness. The establishment of the chaplainship to the Congress is a palpable violation of equal rights as well as of constitutional principles, he said. And what about presidential proclamations involving religious feast days and fasts? Even though they are as recommendations only, they imply religious agency, and they are therefore suspect. On balance, Madison reasoned even these proclamations are not a good idea, and he appears to have regretted those issued during his presidency. He said they seem to imply and certainly nourish the erroneous idea of a national religion, he explained. During the administration of Mr. Jefferson, no religion proclamation was issued. Looking back, Madison wished he had followed the same rule. End of quote. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. 
Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.